For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. Down at the Kennedy Space Center, NASA's new SLS rocket is finally being stacked for the first time. After a drawn-out development process, we are finally gearing up for the Artemis 1 launch, an uncrewed demonstration mission of the vehicle and the Orion payload on a flight in and around cislunar space. Now, as exciting as Orion's flight to the moon will be, it isn't the only payload on board. In fact, 13 small sats from a number of different institutions will be hitching a ride on this lunar bus, venturing out into the solar system to do science, demonstrate technology, and push the limits of exploration. I wanted to learn more about these payloads, how NASA is integrating them into the rocket, and what we can expect when they fly. So I reached out to the Marshall Space Flight Center's Paul Bookout, a secondary payload integration manager for Artemis 1. All right, so we're here today with Paul Bookout from NASA Marshall. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing just fine, thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you about something uh, I think is maybe flying a bit under the radar. Uh, with a, there's, you know, there's a lot of coverage about the SLS program and the Artemis program, but there's some other stuff traveling along with this rocket that I think is a pretty cool story, and we're going to dig into it today. Um, I wanted to start, though, just by talking a little bit about you. So maybe you can just give us a bit of a background of yourself. Where did you come from? How did you get into this line of work? Um, and uh, what's your current role with the program right now? So um, my educational background, when I graduated high school, I was not going to college. That was the last thing. I was in love. I had a girlfriend back home, didn't want to leave her. <laughs> and guess what happened? <laughs> we broke up a little after that. So I went to actually went to a vocational school for mechanical drafting and got done there in record time. Couldn't find a job with my instructor and my parents kind of having long talks with me, they said, you need to go to college. It's like, okay, fine. So I went to a community college uh, for the first two years. And that was great because um, I learned a lot, but I didn't have to go through all the cut classes like at a major university where physics and calculus are really hard. I mean, it was hard there at the community college. but um, So I was able to get around all that. But when I finally went to the uh, university, I didn't have any issues jumping right into the junior and senior level classes. So, you know, it was a great experience for me in doing that. So two years later, I got a mechanical engineering degree. And since I didn't have the four-year burnout, I thought, well, I'll go ahead and stick around two more years and got me a master's. Uh, so after that, I was burned out. I was ready to get out of there. So I actually started working for the U.S. Army Missile Command in Huntsville, Alabama, as a civil servant. And then about a year and a half later, a friend of mine uh, who I went to graduate school with, was working for NASA, and they had an opening in the dynamics and vibration area, and that was my background. So that's I jumped over, been with NASA ever since, and never looked back. So in the meantime on that, though, I uh, went what they call a full-time study, uh, went to the University of Tennessee, and got a second master's. And 
went back to work in Huntsville, then did some night school at the, and went to the University of Alabama in Huntsville and got a PhD in aerospace, mechanical aerospace department. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I, I, I always love asking this question because I always, I never get a, 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 the same answer. It's always, a, you know, a different, interesting path that people go through um, to get to where they are. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. So if there's any high school students out there listening, it's like, if you don't have it all figured out what you want to do right now, don't worry <laughs> about it because <laughs> I wasn't going anywhere to college after I graduated and look at me now. So it can all yeah. turn around. Well, I can vouch for that. 20 years out of high school and I still haven't quite figured out what I want to be when I grow up. So, <laughs> uh, All right. So let's talk about the uh, Artemis CubeSat program. So this is uh, what we're going to dig into today. There's there's more than just an Orion spacecraft traveling on this rocket. Maybe you'll just give us a bit of an overview on this program. Um, what is the objective of this CubeSat program along with the Artemis 1 launch? Well, NASA's new launch vehicle, SLS, Space Launch System rocket, um, is one of the world's most powerful rockets. Um, and especially for the first couple of flights, or the first flight, we actually have more lift capability than the cargo and the items we have on it, which is actually the Orion spacecraft. And its primary mission is to test out that spacecraft. Um, it's all of its um, controls, avionics and everything to go out flash past the moon and come back and splash down in the ocean. So it's going to test all those systems out before we actually put crew on there on the Artemis II mission. So since we have additional mass lift capability, NASA decided to go ahead and, and add uh, secondary payloads or CubeSats uh, to this mission to give them the option to fly free on the launch on the rocket. So they don't have to necessarily pay for the rocket launch itself, uh, but you know they have to still pay for the development of their own payloads and the integration aspects of it. So we had up to capability of up to 17 payloads for this first mission, these CubeSats, but we decided only to limit it to 13 the first time out. Again, still testing out new rocket and everything. So just wanted to work out all the kinks before we went into larger payloads. And and where do these payloads come from? I mean, are these are these uh, internally funded at NASA, these these extra payloads, or are they coming from third parties? Um, where, who's contributing these uh, these payloads? Actually, anybody can contribute. There are some for Artemis 1 payload launch. There's several NASA payloads that could be on the program. There's also two internet, two international agencies that are participating, the European Space Agency, specifically the uh, Italians Space Agency, and then also uh, the Japanese, the JAXA Space Agency. They have two payloads that are actually going to be on that. There's universities, uh, several universities that have payloads that they're developing, uh, CubeSats, and also there's a group of engineers that uh, formed a company that really wanted to get into developing these CubeSats. So they formed their own little company. And through one of the CubeSat competitions, CubeQuest, they were able to get selected to fly on the SLS rocket. So as I said before, anybody really can get on there. You just have to have the developing the technologies that can be used here on Earth or to be able to go out into deeper space. So that's the key aspects of getting selected to develop those technologies. That's cool. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice to have the opportunities kind of available broadly. Um, 
what are we talking about for size here? Because I know like the, the term small sat is a very wishy-washy term. No one's really quite sure what a small sat is. So you know it when you see it, but the de- defining it seems to be tougher. And then I know that CubeSats are also, uh, they vary in different sizes. So how big are we talking each one of these payloads uh, can be? Okay, when we talked about uh, CubeSats, a cube is defined as a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cube. Okay, so the ones we're flying on Artemis 1 are classified as a 6U cube. So it's 10 by 20 by 30 centimeters. Uh, and they can go up from there. And there's different sizes. There's a 1 cube. There's a 3 cube that are all in line. There's a 6 cube that's actually a 10 by 10 by 60. So there's various different sizes and configurations of cube sets you can create. And for Artemis 1, the payloads are restricted to 14 kilograms. So uh, again, they can, that's just because of the dispenser we chose and also the design of the brackets that are connecting them to the launch vehicle. Is, is 14 kilograms, is that small? I don't really have a good um, uh, sense of scale for like what a six use CubeSat would be weigh. <laughs> is, that a, is that a tough constraint for someone who's developing a six U CubeSat or is that pretty in line with what you would get out of that? Uh, that's pretty in line okay. with what you can get. Um, for the missions that they go with, uh, a 6U is really the smallest you can go because going out into deep space, which these primary missions are going, you need a propulsion system, you need um, batteries, you need uh, solar panels, you need um, all your avionics, and of course you need your instrumentation, your scientific instrumentation. Two to go along. So it's it's a lot to pack into a small package. Yeah, tough to get the job done with just one cube. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and then can you talk a little bit about where in the rocket these payloads sit, just so that we have kind of an idea of the location that they're being carried? Okay, yeah. So the secondary payloads are actually installed in the Orion stage adapter. So this is on the upper part uh, above the uh, ICPS, which is the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, uh, basically the second stage of the rocket, and uh, and it attaches the ICPS to the Orion spacecraft through the surface module. So it's way up there on the top. Um, and there, so it's a kind of a ring shape um, adapter. And inside that ring, we have on um, brackets that are installed around the circumference, inside of the circumference at angles uh, so once the Orion spacecraft uh, is separated and safely re- uh, at a safe distance, we come in and the avionics unit for the dispensing of the payloads starts dispensing those payloads at predetermined locations. Okay, cool. So then, yeah, so it's right under the primary payload then. Uh, I guess maybe the the question, I'm, I'm maybe getting ahead of myself here. Then. So then does you, do you have control over the upper stage after the, the payload separates, after the Orion's gone? Like you can maneuver it around to, to launch these payloads in different places? No. So what we do uh, to do minimal impact to the vehicle, which is, of course, secondary payloads, that's one of the primary uh, requirements, minimum impact and uh, do no damage. As In other words, be safe. Yeah, do no harm, right? Do no harm, yes. <laughs> so once the... Orion spacecraft is separated. The ICPS goes through its disposal maneuvers. So it exhausts and burns off any additional propulsion that they still have left, um, downloads a final trajectory, 
and then shuts down. Okay. Okay. So right before it shuts down, it turns on the avionics unit, which is a self-contained unit, uh, avionics to, unit to deploy the secondary payloads. And it's a self-contained unit, has its own batteries. So the ICPS wakes us, the avionics unit up, and it shuts down. It also orientates itself to the sun at a certain angle and goes into a one RPM row, roll for stability and also to kind of keep the payloads uh, warm so they don't get, you know, because it's, you know, minus 200 something degrees <laughs> Kelvin or Fahrenheit up there. So, uh, yeah, so it helps keep them warm also with this rotation and a certain angling to the sun. So this avionics unit just starts counting. And after so many minutes, it knows to deploy a certain payload. And a few minutes later, it knows to deploy the next payload and so forth and so on throughout the deployment scenario. That's cool that you have your own avionics. I, I hadn't really thought of that, thought that through. I think I was just expecting it to all happen while the rest of the rocket was in control, but it's neat that... Um... Right. It's a little bit different than a lot of the other rockets that are launched where their avionics, the guidance and the controls, avionics of the uh, EELVs or expendable launch vehicles actually control the deployments. Mm -hmm. Where this here, they just wake us up and we do our own thing. I'm kind of thinking the good analog is like the the Centaur upper stage on on Atlas has like a a little payload deployer in the bottom of the rocket. That's like how we saw the the um, the Marco satellites go to Mars, for example. They were put in there, so, so right, kind of kind of similar, just on top instead of the bottom. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about some of the the actual payloads themselves. Um, I think there's some really neat science stories in here. There's some neat technology demonstrations. Um, I, I, we probably don't have enough time to go one by one through 13 of them, but I have a sure couple. Sure we do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I at least have a couple favorites of my own, then maybe then I'll ask you what your favorites are and we can we can do that. But okay. Um, so the uh, lunar ice seems to be a big theme. There's like three payloads I'm counting here that are, that are going to the moon to look for water and look for ice and look for hydrogen. Uh, lunar flashlight, lunar ice cube, Luna H map. Um, tell us a bit about these and and what their capabilities might be. I guess I should have started off with what my role is. Okay. <laughs> NASA here. Uh, so let me jump back. Um, so what my role is, is a secondary payload integration manager. So what I do is give the payloads developers requirements to be able to be integrated into the vehicle. So I give them the requirements They'll go off and design their payloads, test it, and create their test data, give that back to, uh, to me, and I'll get uh, our engineering to verify that they have met those requirements. And it's just not interface requirements like, uh, can you, as I mentioned before, are you under uh, 14 kilograms? Are you this size? Uh, is your center of gravity in the right place? Uh, it's also safety aspects. It's like they have to be turned off during um, launch. And they only can wake up until after they're deployed. And all these other safety features uh, that you have to have multiple switches, make sure you don't get turned on and those type of things to, again, do no harm to the vehicle. So that's kind of my role. And I'm actually the secondary, the SPIM, Secondary Payload Integration Manager for the two JAXA payloads. Um, so I know some about the other payloads uh, because there's other SPIMs that work those. So. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, apologize for the 
uh, not being completely up to speed on some of those. So anyway, yeah, so as you said, each one of those are going to the moon looking for uh, frozen ice in the pole areas or the constant shadowed areas of craters and everything where we still think that there's, well, they have found that there is some ice there. But what these payloads are doing, it, again, think of this a little small little satellite. These other satellites that have already discovered some ice up there, they're multi-million dollar payloads. Uh, well, these here are just, you know, smaller payloads, uh, relatively low expense. And they're trying to develop um, some new instrumentation, some of those technologies, and trying to develop those in these smaller payloads. So Lunar Flashlight, they'll be just demonstrating the capabilities and looking at ice deposits, again, in favorable situations. Uh, they're going to be using... Uh, a light to the laser to highlight the ice, possible ice in those regions, and then use a spectrometer to measure those reflective lights to determine what's actually down there. Lunar Ice Cube is going to be using another spectrometer, infrared spectrometer, to be able to detect that water ice. Uh, and then LunaMap uh, is going to be doing, again, similar things, but using a neutron, high efficiency neutron spectrometer. Uh, to be able to determine, or the hydrocarbons is actually, I believe, what they're looking for, hydrogen mapping of it. So there are three different technologies that they're developing for miniaturization, uh, but doing pretty much the same goal. Yeah. Well, it's it's nice that uh, this this program will enable sort of, um, like this is this strikes me as sort of like a pretty rapid way to uh, blast out a few different technology demonstrations in a reasonably low risk way, right? Like instead of buying another one of these lunar reconnaissance orbiters that are these giant, uh, you know, like you said, multi-million dollar programs, we can just kind of blast these out. And if they work great, we move on to the next thing. If they don't, well, we, we've learned that too, right? It's kind of neat that we're able to do that. Exactly. Uh, do you want to tell us maybe a bit more about the JAXA payloads then, since you, you are, are maybe a bit more versed in what's going on there? I know the, the, the one of them is, is really fascinating. It's actually a lander, which I don't know if a lot of people know about, but that, you know, Artemis 1 is going to have a, a spacecraft land on the moon. But this, I'll see if I pronounce it right, Omo Tanashi? Correct. Yes. And definitely what I like to tell you about the Japanese <laughs> payloads. <laughs> so... Uh, as you mentioned before, Omotenashi is one of the JAXA payloads, and they're going to be quote-unquote landing on the moon, where they'll actually be landing at about 120 miles an hour. <laughs> they're going to be using an airbag and some crushable material to soften the landing and mainly measuring the impact uh, dynamics of the land. They have an accelerometer on board and measuring that impact, how hard it hits, uh, and then relating that information back. So what actually lands on the moon is just a small subset of the CubeSat. It's probably about a 10 by 10 by 3 centimeter box that actually lands on the moon. Oh, wow. Tiny. Uh, they actually have a solid rocket motor that they use to slow down. So they actually have three parts to their CubeSat. They have an orbiting module, solar rocket motor and a surface probe. So once they get close to the moon, the surface probe and the rocket, solid rocket motor will separate from the orbiting module. And the orbiting module will go around the moon once or twice and then eventually crash into the moon. Uh, in the meantime, it'll be taking radiation measurements and sending back to the Earth. The solid rocket motor, again, will slow down the surface probe. And 
once it's slowed down or used all of its fuel, it'll detach. And then again, just that small surface probe with an inflatable airbag and some crushable material that soft, will soften the impact into the lunar surface. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a pretty innovative way to land. I know there, there was, um, I think early in the space race, I think the Soviets did kind of something similar. They had these like crash landers that would just, they would just like <laughs> cover it up with steel so that it didn't break and then they just kind of smash it into the surface. But <laughs> Yeah, and that's several of the landers on Mars have done that way too with uh, airbags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can't remember the names of them. Yeah, Spirit Opportunity both Spirit did airbags. Spirit Opportunity, yes. Um, I think Pathfinder did as well, so... Cool. Okay. Uh, any others uh, that are particularly um, exciting to you in, in terms of uh, payloads? The, one, the other one is Neo Scout, uh, mm. and that's a NASA payload. And what I like about that is because they're going to be using solar cells for interspace propulsion, you know, the solar winds. So they've got a cell which is going to deploy out of this, again, 10 by 10 by uh, 30 CubeSat, centimeter CubeSat. And they're going to deploy a cell, and I'm sorry to exchange uh, units on you, but the cell measures about 40 by 40 feet across. So it's, imagine that huge cell wrapped up into this small little CubeSat. So that's some technology development there. And if they're successful, which they will be the first solar cell to actually use as propulsion going out into deep space. Now, there's been some demonstration of solar cells in low Earth orbit, but this will be the first one to actually go out to deep space for it to meet their mission. So they will be doing a, uh, again, a near-Earth asteroid is what their NEA scout, NEA is for. So it'll go fly past a near-Earth asteroid and take a few, take pictures as it flies by and then relate that information back. And yeah, you're at the NASA when you said, I think that's developed at Marshall. It's a Marshall program, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Now I know why it's your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't say it was my favorite. I just said that was another one. <laughs> now, if you want to know my favorite. I do, yeah. So, Tell me. Please. Okay. So actually, it is Omotenashi. Okay, The yeah. one I'm working on. And the reason why is because if Omotenashi is successful, JAXA will be the fourth nation in the world to be able to land a payload on the moon successfully and get you know information back. So... If they actually do that, just the excitement of knowing I was part of making history, yeah, of being one of you know, and along with of course the Japanese having the fourth lander on the moon that actually lands. You know, some of the other countries, I believe it's India, uh, they've tried a couple of times but have crashed and lost communication. Uh, but if Omotenashi can do it this time, then they'll be the fourth. So that's real exciting. So that's again, that's one of my favorites. Um, one thing I noticed looking at all these payloads is that there is a kind of a diversity of where they're going, right? There's some of them are kind of working in this space between the earth and the moon. Some are on the surface, some are going out past the moon. Um, can you talk a bit about how you deploy all these different mission profiles? Like, do they all come out at once or are there different spots where they, um, uh, deploy? Okay. Yeah. Like you said, depending on the mission, each payload wants to get off at different times. We created what we call bus stops along the path of the, <laughs> the trajectory of the ICPS. And if somebody says, oh, I want to get off at, say, 192,000 kilometers from Earth, it's like, okay, do you know really where that is? So it's like, so we've created a bus stop at, uh, 
one point. And it's, uh, that distance is roughly about halfway to the moon. So we've got a bus stop there. So we say at bus stop three, we know it's halfway between the earth and the moon and they want to get off there. Okay. So it kind of puts a big picture of where, you know, how, where they want to get off and just instead of saying 192,000 kilometers, it's a little bit harder. So we actually have five bus stops that we kind of created and they can get off a little bit before or after any of the bus stops. Uh, but again, it's just to allow us to wrap our heads around where they really want to get off. So the first bus stop is between the two Van Allen belts or the radiation belts. Hmm. This is the first opportunity that a payload can get off. It'll be a little bit risky for them because they still have to go through the second radiation belt. So they have to prepare their payload to be able to do that. But a lot of them need to get off as soon as they can to be able to make the missions. And really, those are the ones that are going to the moon that want to get off as soon as they can. And you, you want to say, well, why is that? The ICPS is going past the moon. Why don't they just wait until they get there? Well, they are going, the ICPS is going so fast that the lunar gravity, they don't have enough propulsion systems, the CubeSats, to be able to slow down, to be able to get captured by the moon if they get off close to the moon. Mm-hmm. They'll just go flying by. So they want to get off as soon as they can so they can kind of start slowing down uh, as they approach the moon. And they're still not going to be able to go directly into a lunar orbit. They'll go out past, way past it, and come slowly back by the around the Earth, moon and do that a couple times before they actually get into their uh, mission profile trajectories. So, I mean, we're talking uh, a month or two to be able to do that. Mm, okay. So, again, it's because these CubeSats have such a small propulsion system, they don't have the delta velocity or delta v what we call capability to, to slow down uh, well except for omotenashi which got the solar rocket motor <laughs> that's a different story <laughs> so most of them again want to get off at bus stop one or bus stop two so they can slow down enough there's uh one cusp that's going out to the uh, to measure the solar winds so they're going a little bit closer to the moon so they're getting off around bus a little bit after bus stop two there's a couple of payloads that are want to go out into deep space. So they initially want to get off um, after they after ICPS does a sling by slingshot around the moon and have extra velocity, and then they'll de- be deployed. Hmm. It's when they're wanting to get out. So they'll get that extra boost. And one or two of them don't have propulsion systems because they're utilizing the velocity of ICPS um, and its disposal. They're going into the either synchronous orbit or orbit around the sun is where they're disposing the ICPS. So it's the same area that they're wanting to go to. Hmm. That's, that seems like a, it's, it's really flexible. I don't think I really um, appreciated the the capability here because like that's, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're like offering this as a service to say, here's like 17 slots and you can get off at any bus stop. Um, that's like a pretty, that's a pretty enticing offer for a little CubeSat developer, I think. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So yeah. SLS is the only one that's offering rideshare uh, to out to deep space. You know, until now, all the rideshare opportunities for CubeSats have been basically to lower Earth or yeah. orbit or geosynchronous orbit. 
So SLS is giving them the opportunity to be able to get out into deep space. All right, so let's let's look ahead a little bit here. Um, the the preparation for launch at first. So I have heard that there are a couple of the payloads that are having trouble um, getting to the uh, the integration on time. Maybe you can just give us a, a bit of an overview of where these thirteen payloads are at. Uh, we got the whole launch flow happening right now. I'd love to just kind of hear uh, what the status is. Okay, so right now. And we're doing everything we can to be able to support these secondary payloads to be able to make this mission. Uh, however, of course, as the name themselves, secondary payloads, they're secondary to the primary mission. So if, if they get into trouble where they can't uh, get technical issues or other issues that they can't make the flight, uh, they're going to be left behind. It's because... The bus is leaving. You know, <laughs> yeah, the bus is leaving. Um, so... But we're trying to do everything we can to help them to be able to make the flight. Uh, so we are using some um, structural test articles and some of the in the vibration testing, dynamic testing of the stacked vehicle to be able to give them about another month or so before they have to be integrated into the vehicle. So we're, we're doing everything we can within reason to be able to support these payloads to be able to make a uh, flight. That's great. And and the ones that are on time, wh where are they right now? Like, what's the, do they, they come to Marshall or do they go to Kennedy? No, they'll be arriving at Kennedy. So right now, uh, I guess my, again, my favorite payload, Omotanashi, <laughs> is already down there at KSC. <laughs> okay, good green check mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the first one down there. So the Japanese have been really great to work with. Um, so I'm really happy. They've made my job a lot easier. Um, so... Um, Let's see, some of them are in on their way down or will be shipped shortly, and a lot of them will be coming down right after that first week of July. Okay. So uh, the ones that are kind of having to ship overseas and uh, take longer, they've already been shipped, are in the process of being shipped, and uh, some of them, the payload developers are actually hand-carrying their payloads down there. So when they get when they need to be down there, then that's when they're going to have the payloads down there a day or two before. And looking ahead to uh, future flights. So uh, Artemis 2 obviously will be the one after Artemis 1. Um, is there a plan to continue this program and have another 13 or 17 payloads or whatever it is on the on the next uh, flight? Uh, yeah, we, we were planning on having uh, payloads on Artemis 2, but that mission uh, profile is a little bit different than Artemis 1 and right now it's not looking po possible to be able to have secondary payloads because the primary mission is going to be using up all the mass capability that they're going to have so uh, if you know we had always start planning for Artemis 2 but once they finally came up with their final trajectory information it doesn't look promising for Artemis 2. Those pesky humans weigh a lot, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, so it's not just them. Again, the actual the trajectory and whole mission profile is changing. So they're going to be needing that extra um, mass margin to be able to make their primary mission. Okay. So, but we are still looking at trying to get secondary payloads on future flights. Okay. Uh, so uh, SLS has. Right now, Artemis 1, 2, and 3, I believe, possibly 4, are actually Block 1 configurations. Okay, So when Artemis uh, or SLS actually evolves to Block 1B and a Block 2, 
the upper stage is a, a different upper stage. So right now we have the ICPS and then we're getting ready to go to an EUS or exploration upper stage. And it's a lot larger diameter. With those configurations, you actually have a primary payload or you can have Orion with a co-manifested payload. And so on those primary and co-manifested payloads, what we have is a state or a, I'm sorry, a payload adapter. And it's another cone shape uh, at, that goes on the top of the ICPS that the payload mounts onto, the co-manifested or primary payloads. So on that cone, we're looking at putting secondary payloads on those. And we're expanding the size of the capabilities of those secondary payloads from a 6U up to a 12U and even a 24U. Wow, okay. Uh, so we're looking at a lot larger capability. Uh, again, it all depends on the mission, the how much that primary payload or Comanfis payload uh, is going to be using for its mass allocations. And if there's any extra, then we'll try to utilize that for secondary payloads. That's awesome. Yeah, that was exactly what my question was going to be, because I know that the block uh, block 1B is even just, yeah, just block 1B is is a lot more capable and um but it is a different hardware adapter. So thank you for, for getting ahead of my question. That's <laughs> Sorry. No, that's great. That's lovely. Uh, awesome. Okay, cool. Well, uh, Paul, this has been uh, really fascinating. So thank you for sharing this information about all these different CubeSats. I'm very excited to see all the little trickles of science and engineering that come out of these uh, payloads along with the primary mission. Of course, I'm very <laughs> excited for Orion to fly, but these are, these are also really cool for the science geek in me. Um, if the listeners want to learn more about this program or follow it along, or maybe they want to learn more about you and follow you along, where would you like to point them on the internet uh, to learn more? If you, you know, go to nasa.gov, you can go in and SLS, do a search on that. Uh, we've got Twitter feeds, we've got um, Facebook pages, and of course the internet home homepage, anywhere, any of those, you can find us on those different type of medias. There's also another program out there. Um, of course, SLS isn't the only rocket that's launching uh, payloads, you know, up to T-space. For those other payloads that I mentioned that are going to low Earth orbit or a geosynchronous orbit, uh, there's what they call a CubeSat launch initiative that NASA has that uh, gets a list. They put out a proposal every year for submittals uh, for applications, and they card they put an order of importance on what, which one of those they want to fly on. So if NASA has a launching a rocket on any type of their missions, so if they're using a, an Atlas rocket or a Delta or whatever rocket they're launching their primary mission on, if that rocket still has more lift capability, then they'll utilize secondary payloads on that categorized from their CubeSat launch initiative. Okay, cool. So there's other opportunities to get on a NASA launch if it's not the SLS rocket going out to deep space. If you have other technologies you want to develop more in low Earth orbit, you could do that also. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll put that link uh, for a CubeSat launch initiative in the show notes. I see we've got one here for um, uh, SLS launching science and technology. So we'll get all those into the show notes. That way listeners can, can click through and find it. Um, but yeah, Paul, thanks so much. This has been really fun. I, I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to talk today. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you for contacting me and allowing me to speak with everyone and yourself too and tell you all the exciting things that I do at NASA. 
That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thank you to Paul for joining the show and teaching us about this very cool program. I'm jazzed to see all the science and engineering data come from these flights. Uh, Quick programming note, I will be moving to a new city this week, and so things are a little hectic in my life, in my schedule. I don't quite have a clear picture of what July will look like. I'm also squeezing a vacation in there, but I just want to say that if you don't hear from me for a couple of weeks, don't worry. I'm probably just trying to find my microphone in a giant pile of boxes. Anyway, have a great week, and at Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.